0: The Third World, Episode Twelve, The Purge That Was Nearly the End. Hey Dobardan, muleboangi, zravo, how's it? allo, I'm Ruthie. I'm from Sarajevo to Red Africa. Welcome to our podcast about the people and history of the real Third World. Forget the telethons. The phrase "the Third World" came about as an act of defiance when several smaller and mainly post-colonial nations decided they didn't want to choose between the western first world or the eastern second world, but instead to choose their own third way. Alone, they couldn't rival the superpowers, but together they could be a force to be reckoned with. The nations of the third world weren't merely poverty-stricken post-colonial backwaters, They had traditions of thousands of years of literature, they were the cradle of humankind and civilization, and they had fought hard battles for self-determination. And, even more, the events of the world today directly descend from the Third World's past. These stories have been overlooked long enough, and we're going to tell them to you here. In our last episode, we left off with the story of the alleged vampire countess Elizabeth Bathory, whose story goes far beyond torture and murder, and had ramifications for the entire Western Christian world. But, her story did not end on that August day in 1614 when she died, walled up in her own castle. Elizabeth's descendants still had a huge role to play in the history of the Habsburg Empire— and the Habsburg Empire still had work to do in making the borderlands conform to their imperial wishes. It would be a bloody business. But, then, bloody business was pretty normal on the Habsburg frontier. About 90 years before Elizabeth Bathory's death, in 1527, the kingdoms of Hungary and Croatia had voted to place their crown on the head of Archduke Ferdinand Habsburg. Ferdinand, in return, had vowed to give the two kingdoms certain protections. One particular noble, Nikola III Zrinski, had pushed and cajoled on Ferdinand's behalf. He was, in effect, the main instigator of Ferdinand's election. A warrior himself, as all of the border nobles were required to be, Zrinsky's father had been killed by the Ottomans at the Battle of Kerbava Field in 1493. He knew as well as anyone, and more than most, what was at stake in the Christian world. And he was absolutely driven to make sure that world survived. His son, Nikola Forsrinsky, served brilliantly at the First Siege of Vienna, just two years later in 1529, and was rewarded for that. He continued fighting the Ottomans on the Habsburg borders, but also protected the imperial family in other ways— notably stabbing an imperial army commander to death at dinner because the commander was plotting to betray the Habsburg king. Nikola IV died at his peak defending a castle at the siege of Shigetavar from the advancing forces of Suleiman the Magnificent. He possessed the sort of bravery and elan that made men want to follow him, even into death. And so it was when the Ottoman army advance proved unstoppable and Nicola Four had only 600 men left. Let us go out from this burning place into the open and stand up to our enemies. Who dies, he will be with God. Who dies not, his name will be honored. I will go first, and what I do, you do. And God is my witness. I will never leave you, my brothers and knights. Nicola Four was killed during that final charge, two musket shots to the chest and an arrow to his head. But he had thought ahead in that dark time. nicola IV had left behind a giant booby trap rigged to explode. And when the Ottomans streamed into the castle, more than 3,000 of them lost their lives in the ensuing conflagration. nicola IV lost the battle, but prevented the Ottomans from advancing further. It was, as put by Cardinal Richelieu, the battle that saved Western civilization. Those that followed in the Zrinsky family proved no less brave, and continued fighting against the Ottomans and demonstrating loyalty to the Habsburg rulers. Nicholas VI aided King Matthias in eliminating his mother-in-law Elizabeth Bathory and freeing the king from his Bathory dads. Uri IV was master of the treasury, and even though Uri V was poisoned by the imperial general of the Austrian army for his smartassery while serving during the Thirty Years' War, the Zrinski family was still known for their loyalty to the Habsburg Empire. Nikola VII carried the sword of state at the coronation of Ferdinand IV and had personally saved Ferdinand III from a surprise attack by the Swedes. But then something went wrong. Something in the midst of all this bravery and daring do of the Zrinski nobles, who also held extensive lands in Hungary, they turned on the Habsburgs. And in 1671, Peter Zrinski and his brother-in-law, Franz Christoph frankepan were beheaded in Wiener-Nistat by the order of the Habsburg Emperor. Along with them, Ferenc II Nidajdi, the grandson of Elizabeth Bathory, was also executed. Barely escaping execution was Ferenc Rakochi, one-time prince of Transylvania, and yet another Bathory descendant and it was only the beginning of the bloodbath in the borderlands. In a large sense, the saga of Elizabeth Bathory could be seen as the opening act in what was to come. The face of the European monarchy was changing. Power was becoming more centralized in the monarch and was also becoming more absolute. In the enormous Habsburg Empire, which encompassed huge landholdings in extremely diverse locations and cultures, This meant the days of delegating nobles to handle things was swiftly ended. This also meant the emperor was going to have to frequently rob Peter to pay Paul, monetarily and in terms of military protection. A two-front war was impossible, so someone was going to have to take one for the Habsburg team. To add to the evolving line of thought about that absolute monarchy— the devoutly Catholic Habsburgs were facing a tremendous problem in the developing Protestant movement. Four years after Elizabeth's death, the Thirty Years' War, with freedom of religion as its centerpiece, began. Protestant harassment in royal Hungary grew into religious attacks as the Habsburg government and troops merely watched. In several places, Protestant tithes were seized by Catholic clergy, and the Habsburg troops actually helped. The treatment grew so onerous that Protestant nobles developed the saying, in mint which means, Allah is better than who is here. Then, in 1664, the Ottomans and troops and allies of the Habsburg Empire met at the Battle of St. Gotthard, and after an initially promising start, the Ottomans lost big as they panicked and retreated from a surprise attack thousands of their troops drowned in the river it was a glorious victory and the zrinskys were there participating fully nikola 7 zrinski the ban or duke of croatia was named commander in chief of the hungarian army and like his ancestors was always in the thick of the fighting And then, hearing the Habsburg plans for peace, which included raising one of Zrinski's newest defensive castles on the border, paying a peace tribute to the Ottomans, an Ottoman land grant basically driving a corridor through Royal Hungary, and the withdrawal of Habsburg troops from certain border areas, Nicholas VII charged his way into Vienna to protest, and was completely ignored. Emperor Leopold had a blossoming conflict with France to contend with, and he just really didn't care what happened to his Hungarian and Croatian subjects. Nicholas VII, who had been given the Order of the Golden Fleece, had been offered the title of prince, had been created a peer by the French king, had saved Emperor Ferdinand III from death at the hands of the Swedes, had carried this sort of state at the coronation of Ferdinand IV of Austria, and had been celebrated by the Pope himself for his skill, cunning, and absolute daring in confronting and fighting the Ottomans, was treated as an unimportant nonentity. Less than a month later, Nicholas VII was dead, killed during a boar hunt, although the rumors of the time never conclusively disproved were that, quote-unquote, the boar spoke German. Leopold was rid of one of the biggest possible threats to his rule and he even got to publicly mourn the man. But the damage was done. The Ottomans took the benefits of the Peace of Vaspar, and then completely ignored their own signed responsibilities. They continued to police and tax areas that were supposed to be under Royal Hungary's jurisdiction, so much so that the Hungarian and Croatian nobles were not able to apply their own taxes or raise men for their armies. They continued raiding indiscriminately, taking goods and slaves from the areas they had agreed were not part of their lands. The Habsburg ruler did not care, and was actively ignoring the situation, hoping it would just go away so he could deal with what he felt was the more potent threat to his power. The death of Nicholas VII was not the end. The guiding reins of the growing rebellion were picked up by no less than the Palatine of Hungary himself, Ferenc Veseleni, a man known for his huge physical size and for being incredibly strong. He was also a veteran fighter against the Ottomans who had been well-rewarded and lauded for his bravery. And he was married to the great-granddaughter of Elizabeth Bathory, but Veselenia also died early, and the leadership of the growing rebellion passed to the brother of Nikola 7 Zrinski, Peter. Under Peter... Everything would come to a head. No pun intended. The constant raids and pressures of the Ottomans on Hungary and Croatia was overwhelming, and the lack of support from the Habsburg rulers was devastating. But not only were the nobles on the frontiers left to twist helplessly in the winds, those who were Protestant were also being actively persecuted by the Habsburgs as well. And these were people who had spent tremendous amounts of blood as they saw it, defending Christian Europe from the threat of the Ottomans. In their estimation, and there is truth in it, they were the johnnies on the spot who could be counted on to show up and risk their lives under enormous physical threats any time Vienna or the other main Habsburg cities were at risk of siege or invasion. Meanwhile, the Habsburg rulers tended to wait out such vicious battles far from the front lines in relative safety. Western Europe was still Christian because the frontier nobles risked their lives, families, and livelihoods every day in order to provide a bulwark against Ottoman expansion. And now, not only were they being tossed aside with no support, many of their number were being actively targeted by religious persecution. Their only hope they thought, was to break away from the Habsburgs completely. The border magnates took their case to several different rulers, France and Venice amongst them, hoping to find someone who would support them in their bid to break away from the Habsburgs. No one was willing to help. Finally, in desperation, they approached the Ottoman Sultan. Now, It sounds completely off the wall that these magnets would approach the very nation that was causing them so much misery, the very nation they'd been fighting against, and the nation whose power they were trying to break. And yet, looking more deeply, the decision and approach actually weren't crazy at all. Much of the magnets' lands were already under the practical control of the Ottomans, whose army-backed bureaucrats were forcing parts of royal Hungary to pay taxes and follow Ottoman laws already. If the magnates were under the control of the sultan, Ottoman raids would stop. More importantly, the religious persecution of the Protestants would also drop considerably. In the words of several Hungarian nobles themselves, it's better to succumb to the Turks peacefully. If the emperor gains victory, we'll lose our freedom especially in religious affairs. Under the Turk, however, we may maintain our freedom. The leaders of the Magnet Conspiracy, now the Croatian nobles Peter Zrinski, his brother-in-law Fran Krzysztof Frankopan, and Peter Zrinski's Hungarian son-in-law, Franz Rakoci, whose mother was a Bathory, were in agreement. A message was sent to the Grand Vizier, requesting that the border nobles be allowed to proclaim allegiance to the sultan. They asked that they be allowed to retain their traditional Hungarian rights, amongst them free elections, the ability to carry out their own commerce, and the right to build and own fortresses. They also stated that they would pay tribute to the sultan, a tribute amount based on the distance that the sultan's armies would take from the border. Not only did the sultan not agree, but he sent word to Emperor Leopold as to what was afoot amongst his border nobles. The last hope of the frontier magnets was extinguished. Their world was crashing down around them. They felt they had been abandoned by everyone. But there was worse to come. Zrinsky and Frankopan were offered a safe conduct to Vienna to turn themselves in, and Leopold promised to show mercy. He lied. Zrinski and Frankopan, as well as the grandson of Elizabeth Bathory, Franz Nadajdi, were arrested upon arrival. They were tried and convicted of treason, and then sentenced to beheading. Zrinski's verdict read, He committed the greatest sins than the others, in aspiring to obtain the same station as his majesty, that is, to be an independent Croatian ruler. Therefore, he indeed deserves to be crowned, not with a crown, but with a bloody sword. Zrinski, Frankopan, and Nadajdi were beheaded at Nistat on 30 April 1671. Rakoshi was saved only through the intervention of his mother, although his son would later rise up and rebel against the Habsburgs as well. The night before his death, Zrinsky wrote an incredibly moving and beautiful love letter to his wife, Katerina, but it is likely she never received the original. Before it would have made its way to her, the imperial troops had rousted her and her children from Ozel Castle in Croatia, and taken them into custody. Everything that was connected to the Zrinsky and Frankopan families was completely purged, and family members were imprisoned and mistreated. Had the Zrinskis looked to the past, they would have seen a remarkable resemblance to the trials and outcomes surrounding Elizabeth Bathory. But this time it didn't end with the humiliation of one or two families. Leopold had had enough and was determined to end the Protestants in his border realms. More than 2,000 nobles were taken into custody, and, being innocent, provided no protection. 800 Protestant churches were raided and shut down, and forced conversions were everywhere, more than 60,000 in the first two years following the magnet conspiracy alone. Protestant pastors were charged with inciting rebellion, and 41 were executed. It was the logical conclusion to what had started with the accusations of witchcraft and vampirism against a wealthy, powerful, Protestant lady in Hungary. Power was the sole province of the emperor, and it was not to be challenged for any reason. It was better to just... die. Croatia was reduced to nearly nothing. Hungary lost all right to self-rule. But the Habsburgs didn't know what was coming. In just a little over a decade, the Ottomans would again be at Vienna's walls, and this time, the Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire would be facing them without his strongest and most experienced commanders in the Ottoman Wars. The fate of Christian Europe was balanced on a pin. As always with our podcasts, we have barely scratched the surface of the history of the Ottoman invasions, noble rebellions, the Habsburg Empire, and anyone involved in these events. It would take far more than a 15- to 20-minute podcast to even begin to untangle the nuances of history, and I hope you'll use this as a jumping-off point to continue researching. Please read more, go back further... And for heaven's sake, make sure you can find these places on a map. Bravo, salani bueno ok, ciao, au revoir, se,